Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer, as always, is Lou Pellegrino. Two guests this week. First up is John O'Rand of the Sports Business Daily and Sports Business Journal. We have a little bit of a media talk there, including the lineup changes to ESPN and all the soccer programming that is being purchased by the streaming services from ESPN Plus to BR Live, etc. So, uh, media chatter there, and also we'll talk about Keith Oberman as well and everything that went down with his call of the Yankees and Mets, causing a bit of a social media firestorm. After that, John Smoltz, the fine MLB Network studio analyst and game analyst, as well as the Fox Sports game analyst. John Smoltz, of course, with Joe Buck, now calls the World Series, and he is an exceptional analyst. And we go um, pretty deep into his process, why he's in broadcasting, what he enjoys about broadcasting, what he thinks makes a good broadcast. I think you're going to enjoy that, especially if you're interested in the uh, in the art of baseball broadcasting. You will see uh, John Smoltz with uh, Bob Costas and Tom Verducci at the end of this month, Cubs-Phillies, August 31st on the MLB Network Showcase, as well as, obviously, John Smoltz in the postseason for Fox. So two guests, John O'Rand up first and John Smoltz up second, coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, and uh, as I said at the top, we bring in John O'Rand of the Sports Business Daily and Journal, a frequent guest of this podcast. And John O'Rand is on vacation, so he's really doing me a solid here, taking some time out of his vacation to speak to the Sports Media Podcast. John, are you anywhere Are you anywhere worth mentioning? You know, Paris, it's more of a Rome? staycation, actually. Staycation. Yeah. Beautiful, take, beautiful Maryland. The sights and sounds of the Mid-Atlantic. It's great. Yeah. All right, so we got a number of things to talk about, and I um, uh, I want to start off with uh, ESPN's afternoon lineup because you um, broke a story a couple days ago, which basically noted the end of Sports Nation. Uh, I, I say this with no disrespect. I don't know how much of a big story it is because I think sort of everything was sort of seemed clear that 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 show was not long for the earth after all the. The moves, but it does lead to a, an entire new ESPN afternoon lineup in terms of timing with high noon moving from 12 o'clock to 4 o'clock, losing a half hour, which is really never a good sign for a new show. It sets up a whole Eric ride home block from 4 to 4 to uh, 6. And they also bring back SportsCenter from 12 to 1 Eastern with David Lloyd. And I think Carrie Champion is part of that. So let's just start with an overview, John. What did you what did you make of the end of Sports Nation, and what do you make of the lineup changes for ESPN? Well, I, I agree with you on, on on almost all that, Richard. Sports Nation, it was a show that just really had kind of run its course, and it's a, a show that's been around for nine years. That doesn't happen in television a ton, uh, yeah. so it, it, it had a nice long run. It had its sort of ascendancy when it started, when it was, um, you know, the first show to really try to hit it, hit into all these internet fads, you know, and, 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 uh, and talking points and, um, you know, Colin Coward and Michelle Beadle sort of, you know, was their star turn on sports television and, um, and launched their careers on sports television. And in my opinion, um, and yeah. I thought it was a, a, you know, I remember when it launched, it was, it was innovative. It was new. It was, it was just something different than, than you saw on television and I think the rest of television sort of caught up to it, and it became less innovative and new. Um, 
I, I, I never, I never found Sports Nation to be a great show, but I think that they always embraced what, what they were, which is you know just kind of like the the internet on TV or you know funny videos or you know um, I, I mean they had fun doing it, and that's that's when it worked. That, that's when it worked the best, in my opinion. I think that's a really good take on Sports Nation. I don't, I don't think it was a great show by any means, and maybe it wasn't for me. But I give the producers particularly credit for doing stuff that had not been done at ESPN before, including sort of the the nexus of social media and linear television. I certainly think Michelle Beadle is an excellent television talent, and that prompted Colin Coward to new heights. But you know, it sort of was what it was. Very much, I think, sort of for. 20-somethings, and the viewership was never, you know, it was never PTI viewership or through the roof, but, you know, it, it certainly launched a lot of producers who have gone on to other really good things, and like you said, nine years for any television show in sports is it's pretty amazing. So what do you now make of, what do you make of the lineup, John? Sports-centered, coast-to-coast from noon to one, then you go outside the lines, NFL Live, The Jump, this is non-Mondays, high noon, highly questionable, around the horn, PTI. Sports Center. What this tells me, and this is inside baseball, but this podcast is kind of inside baseball, is that Norby Williamson, the longtime executive at ESPN, who's now overseeing Sports Center again, continues to cement his power. He's got another Sports Center back on the docket from noon to one. And the other thing that I see is High Noon, which, like Get Up, was one of the shows that they really, really pitched, and they certainly pitched to ad buyers. While I don't think it's going to f- uh, fold anytime soon, has already lost a half hour. And it's dropped to four o'clock. So, what do you make of the schedule when you look at it from noon to seven? Um, I, I, I look at it two ways. One is the rebirth of Sports Center on ESPN. I think is is a um, just an incredible story. I mean, you think about Agreed. a year ago. You know, they they had you have Van Pelt's show. They had the six o'clock show. That I forget whether that's. A, I always got yelled at. One of those was a sports center and one of those wasn't a sports center, but they, they, they were all sort of like studio shows. They were getting rid of sports centers. They did away with the sports center at noon. You know, they, uh, they, they were coming out with a morning show to, to replace sports center. And, and you had this really big brand that's been with uh, ESPN since, you know, the, the very second that they turned on uh, the, the power in, in 1979, and they were moving away from it. And now this this really takes a look at, at Sports Center. They give it back the, the noon slot. They gave it back the six o'clock slot, basically. And it's you know this, like you said, is they, they put Norby over Sports Center and Norby over over the uh, making the decisions there. And and he's doubling down on on you know that that Sports Center studio show, which is uh, which is completely different from what you and I had been writing. As short as a year ago, I mean, it's, it's a a pretty radical change, in my opinion. Yeah, so let's talk about this because I, I want to stay consistent. I, I I'm going to continue to say that Sports Center, in in some of these time slots, to me, it just feels like a dead brand. Now, the moved Sports Center to the Jamel Hill Michael Smith spot, and the numbers are up. The numbers are not a big, but they're up. And if you're up, you you, you celebrate that as a win in in television. We'll see what happens as it heads forward, but I give Nagani, Kevin Nagani and Sage Steele credit. They've come in, they've done a good job, and I think, if nothing else, ESPN, by um, by removing Hill and Smith, or by Hill and Smith leaving, and Jamel Hill definitely left that show. That wasn't a removal. Michael Smith's a little 
more interesting. But, you know, they got a lot of that negative news cycle out of there, and now that's just sort of a show that is what it is. Um, so in that sense, there's success there. But, John, I, I, I don't know what to think because I, I – I mean, you can put SportsCenter on there, and it'll get what it gets, you know, 250,000 viewers at 12 o'clock or whatever. But I don't see the growth there for that show on linear television. But is maybe the plan if you're Norby, hey, let's just put programming that people know and consistent programming, and this is who we are. And even if we have small declines every year, the declines may not be as big as if we try to swing a hope for a home run and put some debate show there and it and it really crashes yeah the the uh i i agree it's um it, it's it's just sort of like a known brand with with uh anchors that that you can easily fill in and fill out of so so they're not building the the the, the shows around the anchors like they did with uh them pelt or the six o'clock um show from from last year and it's it's just kind of like you know it, it's not I don't want to say it's cookie cutter, but it's it's the way Sports Center was, you know, uh, during the 2000s. You know, the way Sports Center was 18 years ago, and it's uh, it, it's an interesting move to me. Do you? Well, let me ask you this: Do you think it's the right move? I mean, I could, you know, just, just because I think it's long term, maybe not the the play. I mean, I don't even know what I think. That's the I think that's the problem here is that um, I don't know if there's a great answer for ESPN. You know, in the day parts, uh, outside of obviously, you know, the established stuff they have like PTI. But do you? I get the sense from you. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but maybe you like this move. Is this there? Like, could you see Sports Center at twelve and at six o'clock for the next ten years? Is this what they're going to have on linear TV? Is this the play? And is it a smart play? Or if nothing else, is it a play where you can try to stay flat? So I, I you know, I'm a reporter and I'm not a programmer. Uh, so, so this. It, I love talking about this stuff because if I ran ESPN, like all of my focus would be just on the live games, the pregame shows, <laughs> right. postgame shows. the the amount of uh, the amount of time that I write about these afternoon shows is completely disproportionate to the amount of money that comes into them through advertising, the amount of viewers that watch them d- during the day. It, it's almost something that I I would view if I ran it as like a time to keep the lights on, which is why, and th- th- this will dovetail nicely to talk about high noon, which is why I think the high noon move was an excellent move for uh, for Pablo and Bomani because it it gets them into that four o'clock build up into the live into the live games. Noon a, a noon time slot on a sports show uh, on, on a sports channel is something that I, I if I ran ESPN I really couldn't even care about. Yeah, I agree with that. That I think that's I think interestingly enough, even though they lost a half hour, I think it gives them a better chance for long term success. One, they're the lead into what is sort of more like their content and HQ, and they get closer to prime, as you said, which ultimately is what you want. And the show's focus can even be a little bit more on what's coming up as opposed to what you saw hours earlier. So I think that's um, I think that's a smart take, but. Yeah, and I mean, you, we'll you see. mentioned this very briefly, but like that's a two-hour block of programming uh, produced by Eric Rideholm, which is, I mean, he's a, the brains behind PTI, Around the Horn, um, highly questionable. I mean, the uh, th- that's a that's a block of programming that if I were associated with with High Noon, that I would desperately want to be a part of because it it would uh, nothing guarantees anything, but it but it. Uh, 
long-term success is uh, it looks pretty good in, in those terms. Well, if you are an ESPN talent, you want two things. You want one, you want Eric Ride home to notice you because I think it gives you your best chance of long-term success, whether that's Lebertard, Pablo uh, Torre, Bomani Jones, Mina Kimes. Uh, you know, look at all the people who are sort of part of, who've been guests on the Lebertard shows or the PTI shows. Generally speaking, you stick around ESPN for a long time. And the second thing, and again, this is for front-facing talent. I would obviously want an agent who's very, very tied to ESPN or has contacts with the Rob Sabinelli's in the talent department or the Norby Williamson's and Jimmy Pataro's. I mean, I think those are the two sort of ways to be very successful at ESPN. There's other ways, of course, as well. But, you know, the ride home, especially if you're a former writer turned quote-unquote personality, if you can be part of ride home's world, you're probably going to be living pretty good. Um, All right, let's get off ESPN's lineup because I'm sure we'll spend, as you said, an inordinate amount of time talking about that over the next couple of years on this podcast. Let's get to a story you wrote about ESPN Plus, and specifically ESPN Plus's um, push when it comes to soccer inventory. Uh, We're taping this today on Tuesday, um, August 14th. Tomorrow I have a story uh, that goes behind the scenes a little bit of how ESPN acquired Syria A. John has a little bit of that as well in his latest column. But, John, the thing that I was struck by was that um, you had some numbers on here. You said that ESPN's deal with IMG, which owns the Serie A rights and the FA Cup rights and some other stuff, was three years, $55 million. That was pretty interesting to me that you got the number. And the other thing was, and I think you hit this, it's very clear that the ESPN Plus model is going super heavy on global soccer to try to get the hardcore soccer fan to pay money for that streaming product. And I actually think that's a pretty smart strategy. I don't know if ESPN Plus is going to be successful or not. I mean, it's way too early. I wouldn't even make that call. But I like that because that's premium programming and soccer fans are diehards and I think they'd pay. So that's my big overview to sort of lead you into what do you make of ESPN Plus's foray into soccer? Well, I I find it interesting because uh, BR Live, which is run by uh, Turner, also has been uh, pretty aggressive in terms of getting these international soccer rights. And uh, and, and what, what I'm seeing right now is uh, these European sports rights are getting valued higher because if you're running a streaming service, when do most people stream? They stream either at school or at, at work. Um, you know, hmm. d- during the primetime hours, people are typically watching television um, or uh, watching television a lot more uh, than, than streaming. So that makes, that makes live sports content that occurs during the daytime on the, uh, in the United States a lot more valuable to um, to some of these networks, and I think that's uh, that's what we're seeing here. That what we're seeing, you know, ESPN going after a, a lot of international soccer rights, and part of it is to get the soccer fan, but part of it is also just to have just live content during the day when people actually stream. I, that's why uh, Turner spent as much as it's been on the on the Champions League, you know, for, uh, in order to get that. NBC has you know set the. Uh, Set the precedent with uh, with what they've done with the EPL and and anything that happens with with uh, the English Premier League, you know they're they're out there. Um, you have to subscribe to um, NBC in order to see it. So it's, the 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 big change that I've noticed with the Serie A and one of the reasons that I wanted to write about the Serie A is just the amount of money that these uh, 
European, typically European, but any kind of international sports leagues are starting to see based on this. Hmm. Do you, um, when you look at the price points for all these different outlays from BR to ESPN Plus to NBC's, I think it's maybe called Premier Gold or whatever it's called, um, what do you think of the pricing point for consumers? It feels a little high to me, but you know these 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 companies are not in the business of giving consumers quite frankly uh the lowest possible price so richard i have i have two ways of of answering that one is for as long as i've been reporting this prices always look way too high at the beginning of a deal and amazingly at the end of the deal they they it, it always looks completely reasonable i i've hmm. i i can't recall more than a handful of deals that at the end of the terms uh, the the prices uh, continued to to look to look really high um for the consumer second, you're talking about i'm not i'm not i'm not talking about the price for the rights deal i'm talking about the pricing point for the consumer to get in oh oh for the five dollars per per uh for, yeah yeah no no I, I i i generally agree with you yeah sports rights deals a lot of times at the end of the deal look Really good. I mean, look at CBS's SEC deal. Yeah, no, I'm talking about the price point that me as a consumer in Boise or Fargo or Miami has to get in on these. On yeah, the, if I'm know, a fan sort of, of watch all the soccer, soccer, I'm going to pay five dollars a month to, to watch ESPN Plus, uh, and 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 you're going to see more than Italian soccer. They, they you you then get access to to everything out there, and if I'm a fan of um, you know the FA Cup, if I'm a fan of English soccer, I'm probably going to plunk down. You know, five bucks a month in order to to to, wa- to watch that on on ESPN Plus as well. Um, the 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 price point to me, I I'm not sure if it's going to stay at five dollars. I'm not sure if it's going to go lower or higher. I think that that what we're seeing now is that we're at the ver- really beginning of of everything. But um, uh, so I think people are testing the price points. But uh, Kevin Draper of the New York Times had I, what I, I tweeted this out. I, I I thought he had a pretty good story about if you're a soccer fan now. And you want to watch all the soccer? The price, you know, this unbundled world that we're in right now, you're spending a lot of money getting being ESPN Plus, BR Live, um, NBC Sports Gold, all these different uh, streaming out streaming outlets are are charging their five dollars a month so, so that you can see soccer, and and all of a sudden the price is getting a lot higher than it was when when you just had cable. Yeah, that put the piece is worth checking out. It's kind of amazing how much you have to pay if you want to see basically every soccer match around the world of note. But at the same time, you know, there's no there's no inalienable right basically that you know all this stuff is free to you. I mean, ultimately, in the end, it's it's premium stuff you got to pay. Um, what do you think, John? Of the because I think obviously this is a pretty smart strategy. What we're seeing on ESPN Plus is them trying to accumulate so many different rights deals, especially sports rights deals that exist, and they're all very, very niche. Uh, maybe Serie A is not as niche, but certainly like the Ivy League is niche. And then buttressing around that, trying to you know, do a sports gambling show. Katie Nolan's going to sort of have a home there. I think Matthew Berry has a show there. Do you... Um, if the, Let's sort of take it this way. If you're talent, okay? If you're talent, is that a place you want to be where you get to have probably incredible creativity to do some cool stuff, but the eyeballs initially would be low. How would, what would be your calculus on that? Uh, right now, if you're talent, you would much prefer to be on, on television. Um, uh, I mean, much prefer to be on television. Uh, it's, I don't think it's even a question. Um, will that change? Uh, uh, potentially, uh, potentially. Yeah. Um, 
but the, but we're we're well before uh, anybody would would say, hey, you know, I, I'd rather do Plus than uh, than ESPN for quote unquote you know cr- creative uh, uh, cr- creative reasons. Understand. All right, a couple more here, and then I will. Uh, Wouldn't let you agree you with that, Richard? I would. Although the one caveat I would sort of say to you, John, would be, of course, how much are they paying me? to do plus and, <laughs> you know obviously yeah, if you're going to give that, me that, like a ton everything of, if, true yeah i mean if you're going to give me a crazy amount of money to experiment uh you know i might go on plus as opposed to you know 230 on saturday on espn where <laughs> you know i'll trade the hundred fifty thousand dollar, hundred fifty thousand eyeballs for you know 750 grand so that's one Two, I like having a lot of creative freedom that's just sort of on a personal thing so i kind of like the suits not being in my face. This is just more individual to me. It's one of the reasons I like working at the athletics. One of the reasons I like working at SI they really gave me a lot of autonomy. So those two things for me are, uh, would be important. I also think you can make mistakes in a lower level environment. That said, I could not agree with you more in terms of like exposure or in terms of sort of being relevant to the larger brand. It's not close. I mean, if you're on ESPN plus right now, while your network, you know, while while the Jimmy Pitaros of the world obviously want to grow that, they're still going to be focused on Monday Night Football, and, you know, Joe Tessitore and Booger McFarlane and Jason Witten. So, you know, that's sort of the calculus you got to make. But it's a, it'll be an interesting to watch on all those, you know, BR Live and ESPN Plus because more of these shows are going to come, John. You're going to see more talent sort of just doing things there, especially like I think in the sports gambling space where I feel like that's a place where they could really go big and trying different things to see what works. Uh, all right, two, two last ones, and then I'll get you out of here. Fox made a very big deal in terms of uh, pushing the uh, out-of-home viewership numbers that came in late on the World Cup. Uh, there was a story on Bloomberg. I imagine you got contacted as well, but I got contacted by PR people at Fox, like, you know, sort of let me know how much the numbers have been up, and they're saying that their, their research shows that they're up, 20, they're up 21% from their uh you know from from the final numbers of viewership for the world cup once they uh factored in bars and restaurants and airports that's a massive increase if they're correct uh and it's all proprietary to them but that's a massive increase um and they got a little bit of that story out so i thought fox pr terry hines andrew and what's andrew is it forget for what's his name your your buddies with him i got a figverity Pharisee, my bad. Yeah. So, what? and Eric Aronson is the guy who contacted me. So, shout out to all those Fox people there. I know they love being mentioned on this podcast. Um, did, did, did you leave out Eddie Model on purpose or no? <laughs> I, I'm in a better place with Model right now. It was a little rough, but, you know, I'm sure he's reading the New York Post somewhere. I think we'll be okay. Um, <laughs> the... Uh, so out of, the out of the, the out of home viewership obviously is like the uh, you know it's the holy grail for all these places the foxes and the ESPNs et cetera because there's no doubt sports viewership has been criminally underreported for decades so what'd you make of that I mean I, if nothing else and let's trust Fox that their research is correct it doesn't mean it's accurate because I don't know how you can be so accurate on that anyway but that's a massive number and that you know that that would sort of portend that like all of these mega events John. Super Bowl, NBA Finals, et cetera, you know, the numbers that we get, 25, 26 million, they're probably really like 31, 32 million. Yeah, the the networks are all going crazy over these numbers, and, and they, they, they view it much as, as you just said it. I, I'm, I have a healthier skepticism 
about this, uh, Richard, based on, you know, ad buyers are not falling over themselves to pay for these out-of-home viewers. Um, and, and I think the advertisers are suggesting that, you know, that if – so I just – I write for Sports Business Journal, so I'm more into the business of all this. It's I, I don't see that these out-of-home numbers – as really changing the business. I don't see ad- advertisers paying 20% or even 10% more based on, uh, on, those, uh, on those numbers uh, for two reasons. One is they were already paying for those out-of-home viewers before they were getting measured uh, over the past 20 years. And two is, you know, uh, I know out-of-home is more than just bars and restaurants. It's also if you go to a friend's house or if you're at a hotel on the road. But if you're at a bar and you're being counted as an out-of-home viewer, are you watching the advertising? Uh, Exactly. You're not. That's the key. You're not. And and that's the problem. If you're at a party, you know, a viewing party, watching the World Cup, are you watching the advertising? No, you're you're socializing and talking. So it's uh, a. I don't. I think that these are fun numbers. Uh, They're interesting numbers, but they're not. Right now, they 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 just don't appear to be numbers that move the business for me. Yeah. Well said. So if you're basically, if you're if you're an advertiser, you have to really think about, well, should I be paying extra money for this out-of-home viewership when, I mean, what, 10 5% maybe at most a, at a bar or at someone else's home, they're actually watching the advertisements? That's the problem, I think, for the networks is that while there's no doubt that the, the large number, or I should say the actual number of people watching is far higher, but the people engaged with the broadcast would be the key to me if I was an advertiser, and that's... You, your point is great. You know, why, why should I pay an extra million dollars when I'm not really going to get five million extra eyeballs? Maybe I'm getting a couple hundred thousand extra. And so, also, I, so. I've been paying for those those guys already. You know, you just haven't been measuring them. So, I mean, now you measure them and I have to pay for them. That, that there's, you know, they haven't been able to crack that nut yet. Yeah, our man uh, Anthony Krupe is great on uh, out of home. I found him. I have to bring him on one of these days to uh, from Ad Age to uh, talk about this. All right, here's the last one, John. If this you just bring happened. On, uh, you have, last... have that delay button, you know. He's a little, he loves to curse, but we're allowed to curse on here, which is good. Yeah, you and oh, Chad this Finn, is the you're very freedom that we're talking about. All right. Yeah, you're. This is ESPN Plus, so this is be a be a br live, John. You're allowed to. <laughs> You're allowed to blast f bombs. Um, so the last one I want to talk to you about is Oberman. He Keith Oberman did. Uh, I did not watch this game, uh, and based on Twitter, I think uh, I'm happy I didn't because it seemed like uh, uh, people had some significant opinions on this. So Keith Oberman does the Mets Yankees game yesterday. I think that's right, Mets Yankees game, as we're taping this, and he's not the. I think it's his first time ever doing play by play, and so he goes in there. So there's already going to be people who just dislike Oberman for his play-by-play because people, you know, anytime you bring a non-play-by-play person in, generally speaking, they're usually crushed. Um, And a lot of times for the right reasons. Like Chris Berman should have been crushed for every time he did an NFL play-by-play game because that wasn't for the audience. That was a vanity play. And I'd probably argue that even for this is a vanity play for Oberman. I didn't hear the game. But here's the thing, John, that was really interesting to me that because, and I just want to get your take on this. So it seemed yesterday that Oberman was criticized for two reasons. One, because he's doing the game and the quote-unquote baseball fan doesn't want an outsider or a non-play-by-play person doing it, even though Oberman has a lot of baseball experience. And the second thing is people – it's as if um, – how do I say this? A lot of people were really angry that Oberman had a prominent role given his social media criticism of Barack Obama. And we got – prior to his ESPN tenure – and we got a lot of people saying, well, they fired Kurt Schilling 
why is Keith Olbermann doing baseball? I don't know if that's an exact parallel, given that Schilling was there, had multiple chances, et cetera, et cetera. But listen, Olbermann said a lot of things about Obama that is uh, about Donald Trump online that clearly has, you know, that, that, that people think went way over the line. Where do you stand on all this? So sort of these like two things uh, were for, were sort of merging last night and played out big online. Yeah, I view it as a mid-August programming stunt that drew a lot of attention to a game that uh, probably wouldn't have had as much attention uh, drawn to it uh, as normal. Um, and I can understand uh, putting Olbermann in, in that role. I think the comparisons to – I don't want to relitigate um, – um, Schilling, you know, because we've talked about that ad nauseum, but what sh- what the, the reasons Schilling got fired were completely different from uh, what, what uh, Keith Olbermann was doing with MSNBC and, and with other networks uh, out there. Um, and, and I, you know, I didn't actually listen to the game. I did see a lot, some of the chatter on um, on social media. It, it sounded like you know, he wasn't great, but what uh, wasn't awful. Um, at, but I, I just think, I just view it as an Dog Days of August programming stunt that probably worked based on the amount of traffic that I saw come across my Twitter feed last night. Yeah, that's well said. I mean, basically, here's the deal. If you're ESPN, you have to know that you're going to get criticism for bringing Keith Oberman on from certainly people on the right, given the things he um, given the things he tweeted for a couple of years on Donald Trump and just given his GQ program, uh, this online program that basically crushed the guy. And in my opinion, a lot of times – you know, mostly right than wrong, but like that's just a fact that ESPN's gonna have to live with in that once they brought him back, even though to Oberman's credit, he has followed what I believe is probably a clear contractual obligation not to send any politics on his feed while working at ESPN. But I mean ESPN has to know that like there's history there and that they're gonna get criticized from people who see one of the if not the most you know, prominent one of the most prominent progressives one of the most prominent people sort of with a certain political ideology for many, many years, they brought on to work for them, even if he's not doing that, even if he's not doing politics now. So they're, you know, while I agree with you, I don't want to relitigate Schilling. Both of us have our opinions. I'm also somebody who said many times he shouldn't have been suspended when he was suspended. The firing is sort of a larger issue in that it was multiple offenses. But they have to, you know, they have to know that the criticism for Oberman is going to come because they made that decision they they have to just sort of for lack of better words suck it up and deal with it because they're going to be people pissed off all right john is there uh, anything else you would like to cover on this podcast before you go back to your beautiful mid-atlantic vacation go back put the feet in the pool and hang out no i'm uh, I, i'm re- tan rested and uh, and relaxed right now richard all right. i mean john when you are staycationing is are there any sports media executives hanging out with you at the oran mansion it's like uh or is it just the family at this point? Like, is that, I mean, will we see like a, a, uh, you know, is there is there an Eric Shank spotting, or or a or a David Levy spotting, or is it just it's just it's just the Oran clan? You know, I, I've put out a couple of uh, invites to Burke Magnus and uh, and Eric <laughs> Shanks, but they, they haven't responded yet. So no, just me and the family right now. What a, by the way, John, what a thrill for Burke Magnus to talk to you and me back to back about Syria. Ah, I'm sure that I mean, what a that has to just have made his week basically to to discuss this with us. Two stories. Well, I'm impressed because uh, Burke was actually in the Mid Atlantic last week on vacation at Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. So the fact that you were able to talk to him on the beach is uh, is 
uh, pretty impressive to me. Yeah, I got he was he was good enough to call me back. I did say that I just was focusing only on Syria Ah, and I think that was the reason for me to call me back as opposed to you know me asking like a hundred questions about ESPN's lineup changes or you know, <laughs> their their Urban Meyer coverage. I'm sure that's not what he wanted to hear at that time. So we kept it to Syria Ah, but there'll be you know there'll be there'll be future chances for me to. Get ESPN execs angry. All right, John. John, thank you for this. I know you're on vacation, but I wanted to uh, I wanted to have you on because there were a couple media things that I wanted to chat about. John O'Ran is with the Sports Business Daily and Sports Business Journal. Please check out his work there and also check out his uh, Twitter feed, which uh, if you follow sports media, it should be a must. John, uh, enjoy the rest of your vacation. I am sure we will chat th- soon. Thank you for uh, popping on the Sports Media Podcast today. It's how much I uh, respect this pod, Richard. I come on the vaca- uh, on my vacation, so uh, thanks for having me. And you do it for free. You do it for free, John. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, well, you got to talk to my agent about that. All right, my thanks to John Orand. And uh, now let's get to our conversation with the MLB Network and Fox Sports analyst, John Smoltz. All right, and as I stated at the top, we bring in John Smoltz. He has been an analyst for MLB Network. Since 2010, he's also a analyst for Fox Sports, where you have seen him on the postseason as well as World Series coverage. His baseball career obviously goes without saying. Google it, look it up. He's a Hall of Famer and uh, and one of the more interesting players, certainly in the modern era. And John Smoltz joins us on the Sports Media Podcast. John, thank you for the time. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. John, um, one of the things that's always interesting to me is why professional athletes decide to ultimately pursue broadcasting. Um, in your case, you did it rather quickly, and it, it didn't seem to be something that you needed to do financially. I'm sure you had a lot of options, both staying in the game or business opportunities elsewhere. And But yet you decided to go into broadcasting, and now we're eight years down the road of your broadcasting career, and you know, if you if one makes the sort of determination that calling the World Series is the highest, um, you know, the highest place you could go for your craft, you've 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 hit that in a very short amount of time. So let's sort of start from the beginning. Why did you decide to pursue sports broadcasting following the conclusion of your playing career in two thousand and nine? Well, it started kind of organically where I was still trying to play. Um, I had a unique opportunity. Of course, TBS was uh, the home for me and the Atlanta Braves forever. Um, I did my share of on-field, off-field interviews and actually had a little in-game broadcasting gig in Chicago at Wrigley Field where we got permission from baseball for me to be the third man, in not in the booth, but in the dugout. So I had a stick mic and IFB. It was my first introduction really to kind of Navigating through a game, uh, although be it from a different seat, we had clinched. We were, uh, I was the closer at the time and uh, had a lot of fun with it. So I knew the producer forever. I've known, the obviously, uh, the, the Braves announcers for my whole career. It's like a big family. So that was kind of neat. Um, I'd always done the end games, whether it was the game of the week, CSPN, uh, on the field thing. So that came kind of easy to me. Uh, or at least I should say I was willing to do it. And I think personality-wise, you got to have a can't have thick skin. That's for sure. You got to be able to have fun with it and roll with it. So I did that. Then I had my uh, surgery in 2008, which for all purposes looked like it ended my career. But I had a vision of trying to come back, and so my quest was to come back, 
but I was given an opportunity in 2008 playoffs with TBS to be the third man in the booth with Brian Anderson, Joe Simpson, and the Milwaukee Brewers and St. Louis Cardinals. It was it was really fun. It was a little brand new because um, the uh, awkwardness. Well, it's not really awkwardness. I still wanted to play, so here I was doing the games. Knowing I still wanted to play, not thinking this was going to be part of my future. So 2009 uh, goes, comes and goes. I'm still looking to play in 2010 if the Cardinals were interested. That was probably the only team I was going to play for. It didn't work out. A spot opened up kind of full-time at TBS, and I was offered the position. So I took it, and... um, you know, got my feet wet, so to speak, did playoffs, did the regular season. And um, at that point, I decided that if I was going to do this, that I wanted to do it to the highest level that I could do it. I wanted to be as good as I could be. So I uh, pursued that. The opportunity came up for MLB Network. And, um, you know, the rest has been history. It's kind of not one of those things that I said I I set out to do. It just kind of happened. And uh, I'm not one of those guys that just goes through the motion. So um, to engage, I needed to be fully engaged, and that's that's kind of what I did. John, why initially did you like it? It's, you know, there's, there's I think there's a lot of reasons why people go into broadcasting, uh, especially former athletes or coaches, multitude of reasons. But you're a little bit unique in that you weren't doing it necessarily to, you know, go back in the game the next year. I don't think you were doing it for the paycheck, so to speak. So it strikes me that you really enjoyed it. Whatever the craft is or was for you at that time, you liked it. So why 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 did it why did it fit right away, you think? Well, I think the best part for me was that my introduction was the playoffs. I love the playoffs. Um it's what I it's what made me tick as a baseball player and to get my first opportunity to do a playoff series and pass on that experience, um, you know, although be it raw uh, in the booth, uh, it was it was a lot of fun, and um, you know, had I done just one regular season game, I don't know, you know, maybe it would have been different. But uh, to get into the heat of the moment, to see, you know, CC Sabathia try to carry the Milwaukee Brewers through uh, the St. Louis Cardinals was something pretty special. And uh, you know, I just uh, I looked at it as, wow, that that kind of replaces about half of the adrenaline you get when you're actually doing it, and. You know, as a baseball pitcher, whether I was a starter or a closer, I mean, you wait for opportunities. Starter, you know you're going to pitch. Closer, you wait. And so, fortunately, I've been through every imaginable experience um, to be able to draw from. And for me, whether it was in the booth now or in the playoffs, everything happens slower. And I kind of kind of have a different heartbeat. Um, you know, I see things differently. I don't think the prerequisite of having to go through and be through everything makes you a broadcaster. It, it, it's a nice part of your resume, but I don't think that's what makes you a broadcaster. You've got to be able to explain the game in a way where um, maybe someone who never played the game learns something and someone who played the game 25 years learns something. I, I don't think you speak to one particular part of the audience. At least that's never what I've tried to do. John, there's... Um... You're a good guy to, I think, ask this or at least explore this with as a, as someone who I consider pretty thoughtful and takes an intellectual bent towards baseball broadcasting. There's a debate going on, certainly at ESPN, maybe at 
uh, Fox and MLB too, about what what's the role of a baseball broadcast and broadcaster in 2018, and should it be almost um, position agnostic, where everybody in the booth is essentially a play-by-play person and an analyst? Should it be more conversational than your traditional, you know, here is an Ernie Harwell and then sitting next to Ernie Har- Harwell as a former player or manager? Do you have any thoughts on what on wh- what you think of what is the best broadcast in 2018 or what a what what is an effective broadcast in 2018? Well, that's always subjective, you know. I think uh, I take from a national standpoint, like when we do a national game and I've only been doing this, you know, not as long as Joe Buck or some of the greats that have been doing it for a long time. Joe's called the World Series over 20 some years. And 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 just from a perception standpoint, you're never going to get the feeling from the fan bases it's a good broadcast. And what I mean by that is they're used to their they're used to their play-by-play guys. They don't they don't they're not used to somebody either critiquing or saying something. So it, this is the way it works. I've learned in my short career. If 50% think you're rooting for the other team, then you're doing a good job in your broadcast because the other side always thinks that you're rooting for the other side. And it's amazing, especially the Nats just play-by-play guys. I've never understood that. But more specific to your question, you know, styles of broadcast have changed dramatically, and so has information, and so has how we kind of consume uh, what we're watching, both from a HD to every spot is covered and every angle is covered. So from a booth standpoint, I always believe that if the game isn't the story, in my opinion, then the game isn't very good and you're trying to create a story. But if the game is good and the game is played crisply, it should be an easy broadcast. It's when you have to shift and draw attention to certain things that the game's not drawing. So my job's pretty easy. I kind of get handed off the ball from the play-by-play guys and I'm looking to bring into the home of the viewer a sense of why did this happen? Oh, I, now I know why it happened. What the guys are thinking, how the strategy of the game has altered and moved into just pitching eccentric. And I'm, I'm really not going into the game with a, with a blueprint to say, this is what I want to accomplish today. I gather my information, I watch the game and adjust. And obviously I draw uh, attention to detail like no other when the playoffs come around because you can't make a regular season game a playoff. So you can't make something there's not. And if I ever try to do that, then the broadcast is going to look forced and it's going to look artificial. I'm not artificial. I will make mistakes. I will laugh at myself. I'll try to make someone laugh. And at the end of the day, I remember how hard this game is. And that is my main focus, is that when I critique or talk about the game in a way from my seat, it's not a lack of knowledge of how hard the game was or what I played or what I once was. And I try not to get stuck in one era. So I'm learning as much, maybe not as much as everyone who's in the game today, but I really think my vantage point and my view from the game today is so much different than when I was a player. There's no way that as a player you think about the game other than how do I become the best player I can, how do I survive, how do I get a long career. You're not looking at the game like a broadcaster is or even a fan is, and uh, maybe even the same, so, so to speak, the, the, the man, upper management. John, I want to ask you about process, and I want, if you could, I want you to break down the two different elements that you work in. Uh, so first off, let's talk about the studio. 
How do you prepare for the MLB Tonight studio show, and when do you start preparing whenever you know what day you'll be on? Yeah, you know, that's an interesting challenge for me that I don't have down pat. Um, when I get to the network, I am um, I'm in catch-up mode only because I've been doing games, right? So I kind of bounce around. I kind of hybrid type um, person here where I do games, I do studio, I bounce around, I travel a lot. And um, so the basic difference is when you're doing a game, you just need to know two teams, 50 players. And when you're doing a game, it takes about three days of travel for one game. So you lose time and you lose traction of what's going on in the game and try to catch up. So I find myself just catching up a lot. I come to the studio, which is an enjoyable place to work. It's so much fun. There's so much you can do that sometimes I'm torn, to be honest with you. Like, I'd like to stay here for a week and do my thing, catch up on baseball. But the games are sporadic, so there's no, rhyme, there's no like, perfect scenario where uh, Fox, I do games on Saturdays. And MLB Network, I do games during the week. And the two could be separate from themselves. And when I come here to do studio, I'm I'm looking at different information than I would for, for a particular game. I'm trying to get more global what's happened in the past four days. It's, it's not, I'm just being honest, it's not the easiest, it's not the easiest way to juggle the game. Um, but I found a way that, I mean, there's so much resource here, and people have helped so much that that makes the transition a lot easier. So if you just stay here and work in the studio, it's one fluid. You don't, you're not mobile. You're not in a clubhouse. You're not dealing in interaction with players. When you're a broadcaster, you're seeing the players. Uh, your comments are more than ever passed down, or people know what you're saying to be able to critique or agree or not. When you're in the studio, you're basically giving your opinion without having, for the most part, interaction within the clubhouses, if that makes sense. It does. When it, when it, gets, to the, um, when it gets to you calling games for Fox, and particularly in the postseason, my sense is that on top of obviously what you already know about baseball from playing and watching – the great value is being able to talk to the manager, being able to talk to the players either in production meetings or um, on the field. Is that for yeah. preparation in terms of game broadcast? That's sort of the differentiator? Yeah, you know, so the man manager meetings um, now uh, are a little different than they once were. I mean, you're having younger managers. You have guys who have either been on the other side or for the most part, understand the questions and you know what information you're going to be able to get and what value you can assess that so that was the most awkward thing for me because I just retired when I got into it so I knew a lot of these guys played against them and I didn't feel comfortable asking a lot of questions early and it's really now my 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 greatest resources of knowing the heartbeat of because I'll know based on the way the game is played with managers meetings players all that I'll know the difference between asking the right question and asking a question where you're not going to get an answer. And uh, that's, that's a big part of, of why I enjoy that process now because I get to pick the brains of guys who literally are thinking this 24-7 and we, we kind of fly in, swoop in, get caught up. Imagine they have to do this every day. 
with their local people. And if it's the highest markets like here in New York and Boston, they're doing basically a national baseball game almost every day. So they're getting asked questions. So I try to think of questions that no way would any local person ask or want to know. And, you know, then maybe I get a little bit more than than most. Can you give, uh, even if it's sort of a uh, generic example, what would be what would be the kind of question you can ask of a manager that would be a question the manager is not used to answering? Yeah, so based on this on the games that I, I'm doing, if it's you know, let's just say um, there's a way to ask a, a manager, you know, how much confidence do you have in this player or this situation or what he's going through without saying, you know, hey, he's 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 been bad for two weeks. What are your thoughts? Like, what when are you? When are you going to bench him or move him in the line? There's ways, there's ways to figure out what a guy's doing or not doing. And a manager's, they've been pretty honest in assessing their players, you know, from a standpoint of, of the guy on the mound or the guy at the plate. And we can look at numbers and they can speak directly to what the guy's doing. But sometimes there's things behind the scenes that, you know, don't speak to it. And that's the heartbeat of a manager knowing his clubhouse. And I, it, they don't even have to answer it directly. They give me enough information to know, oh, okay, this guy's, you know, a couple of days from breaking out or, uh, you know, and I don't, I don't speak to specifics in a broadcast unless I specifically say, I talked to Aaron Boone and this is what he said. I'll take the information and apply it and utilize it within the context of the game. You know, uh, if, um, <clears throat> If a player, um, you know, from an injury standpoint, we like to gain access to, you know, what we can basically give the audience. Um, but it's kind of it's kind of been a learned art for me, uh, so that I gain the trust and I'm not abusing the information of what I'm getting that could be vital to the broadcast. If that makes sense. It does. I appreciate you answering that. My number one, my number, my number one focus when I got into this business was I created a a pretty good bridge, and I'm not going to burn that bridge for the sake of a good story or moving the needle or or having a conversation that you know um, that will create a buzz. I, I'm not burning a bridge with relationships with a player, um, and I will get to those questions or interviews when I've done them in, in the way that I know as a player that if you ask me the tough question out of the gate, you've lost me. But if you're engaging me and then we get to that tough question or we get to that tough situation, <clears throat> you've uh, you got my, my trust. John, how do you, one of the things obviously um, what's changed dramatically throughout the course of your career as a player and now as a broadcaster is the use of analytics and data in baseball. Where do you, um, maybe side's not the right word, but how do you think those kind of numbers should be used both in a studio environment and then in a game environment? Yeah, it's a great question because in a game environment for a broadcast, if I can't explain it in 10 seconds, I really can't use it. So if I have to take too long to explain something, uh, whether it's analytics, sabermetrics, or any kind of that, that I'm losing, I'm losing the the viewer, and I'm and I'm not doing my job as a broadcaster. You know, if there's an injury timeout or there's like two minutes that I got time to, sp- I basically get in and out in a 10 to 20 second window. <clears throat> Rarely will I get an opportunity 
to explain something to where you know we flash it up on the screen and everyone has the opportunity if they want i guess at home to 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 google or look but i i can't take the time to explain every nuance that might be to some people you know a great thing and to some are like ah, that doesn't mean anything so i got to do i i really do have to pick and choose and there are some things that i have really come to like and some things i'm not a fan of uh try not to share that personally from a um again stuck in a mode but i think the value of information today for the players has never been greater um uh, for the fans they're getting a a, a I, I guess in the beginning down your throat kind of tutorial of what does this mean and it almost speaks like we're it's almost like there's a group of people speaking a different language and everyone has to just either kind of let it go over their head or find time to figure it out and you know even as a as an analyst I I don't understand every component of it and I would relate it to this if I was playing today I would still do my own information my own searching I would like the information to a point but in my broadcast, I'm given probably 30 pages of stuff or more, maybe hundreds in some cases, depending on the pack, the stat packs. I cannot look at that all. I just can't. I won't be able to have a good broadcast. I spend. I got a game tomorrow in Philly, and I'm 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 running behind based on my schedule. I'll spend six hours tomorrow on the game in my hotel, catching up. I know Boston very well. I've had Boston a bunch. I have yet to do a Philly game. So that's the downside of broadcasting nationally. You don't cover a team. You're not familiar with them. Players change. Weeks come and go. Players come and go, and that's where you're getting reacclimated with a team. And it takes me a long time. On average, I'd say three to five hours on the day of a game that I do, not to mention when I get to the stadium acquiring new information. Um. And so tomorrow will probably be my longest time staring at a at the numbers, but I do my own. I look at my own video, I watch the game the way I want to watch it, and then I let the professionals give me opportunities to share the information if it you know kind of coordinates with what I've seen. So that's just me. If I was a player today, I'd be honest. It'd be too much information for me. Would would kind of handicap me. It really would. I, I wouldn't be the pitcher. I, I think you have to, and I think organizations that do it well understand the personalities and the p- personnel who are going to filter this down and really give the players the best maximum opportunity. There's some people that can't get enough, <clears throat> and there's some people who it's too much, and you have to have that blend. And I think there are definitely some organizations that separate themselves with that kind of philosophy. John, there are, um, the list of people who have been a World Series um, color commentator is, um, it's not very long since, uh, well, it's sort of just taking arbitrary date, like since 1990, you know, Tim McCarver, uh, Morgan and Euchre, uh, Bob Brenly was there for one year and then Harold Reynolds, Tom Verducci and yourself. I think I have everybody. Um, that's, that's a very, it's a very small list of people who have been in that position, a really Incredible position, if you think about it, in sports broadcasting, given the historical nature of the World Series. Did calling the World Series, particularly in 2016, and also, I guess, I would say last year as well, did it feel unlike any other broadcast you had done? And if so, can you describe why it felt different or what was different? Yeah, well, both of them have been epic. How spoiled am I? I mean, I've had two World Series that have gone two seven games. Um, 
And, you know, from from my career pitching three seventh games, there's nothing greater. Uh, it rarely happens. Uh, we don't get that many epic game sevens, and it just so happens the last two. But the first was so special because it was my first, and it happened to be the Cubs. <clears throat> I would say the Cubs-Indians probably wasn't one of the best-played World Series, but the storyline was one of the best. It just couldn't – you couldn't top the way that it came up. You know, two teams, long curse. Um, game seven was crazy. Uh, probably was made crazier by certain things that happened in the game because that game was well in hand for the Cubs and it turned into a classic. Everyone is going to remember it. Um, you know, I feel like that in that moment, again, there were some things that I saw based on experience. There were there were a couple. I'm not gonna be, I'm gonna be honest. My there was a couple times I wanted to walk out of the booth with what I, with, with what I just got. Like I said, a couple things that happened and I literally wanted to walk out and go. It just doesn't get any better than that, so why continue uh, call it a career? And um, <clears throat> that was what was so neat. You know, my job's not to be right. My job is to predict. My job is to, you know, forecast what's happened. Give the almost give the viewer at home like a NASCAR pit. Uh, uh, they're here, they're listening to the pit crew talk to the driver, and before the driver actually does something, you know, you know all the information before and. And so that series was crazy. Um, I had a blast. Um, and again, I, I again I, I look back to the Chapman <clears throat> when he uh, was in that in, in that game, and he had pitched so many innings, and he was fatigued, and he could still see the velocity was there. I know what that's like. And when he was when he gave up the the two run homer, the one thing I can draw from in my experience is that when you force velocity and you're tired, and I've been in that situation, you can what you what you have to do is avoid the one only area that you throw the ball that gives the hitter any remote chance of being able to do what um, I'm drawing a blank on the left on the outfielder for the Indians hit the two run homer, um, Raja Davis. So I remember that like yeah I remember it like it was just. Two minutes ago, I remember sitting there going, "Okay, all right." I'm thinking as a pitcher. I'm in the booth. And I'm trying to prepare the, the 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 viewers for what is the only thing that could happen here. And I remember saying, "The only place that Chapman cannot miss is down and in because Rajah Davis can drop the barrel of the bat, and that's what he's going to use the power for. He can tie the game up." And I said, when you're tired, you, you force velocity and you lose location, and then those two are not a good combination. It's exactly what happened. I mean, as soon as I said it, the next pitch, that's exactly what happened. And, you know, for a broadcaster, especially, I mean, for me, having been through that, that was that was a lot of fun. Not that I was right, but that the situation called for me to at least explain it. And, you know... I've been fortunate that this game is so pitching eccentric that the game moving forward just is right in my sweet spot. I mean, there's so much more pitchers, and really it's all about pitching and analytics and bullpenning, and and it just kind of feeds to what I know. Uh, I know enough about hitting to be dangerous. I wasn't a great one, but I know enough about strategy and the cat-and-mouse game. And, look, if every pitcher was a rookie – and I had to do a game, and I had to tell you what it called for, most likely I'm not going to be right at all because those guys have not been through situations and know what it calls for. There are so many things in a game that I know are blatantly obvious to me, 
but may not be blatantly obvious to a young pitcher because he hasn't experienced it yet. That's why all the veteran guys that I got a chance to do the last two years, I could be more right because that situation, that's experience. That's what they know. You know, Justin Verlander could predict about. It, it, it's just a game plan. It's knowing the inside head of a, you know of what a pitcher is trying to do at the postseason, what a hitter. So those kind of things intrigue me. I love that. And if I don't get too bogged down in the stats, I won't lose sight of the game that's being played because I want to be prepared. I get over-prepared. I get, still get nervous that I don't know enough. And that can still paralyze me as a broadcaster if I'm not careful, thinking that i got to come in the game with a playbook, and as soon as this happens, oh, i got to go right here, and as soon as that happens, if I'm not watching the game, seeing what the pitcher has or doesn't have, seeing what the hitters are trying to do, then it's not going to be a great broadcast for me. <clears throat> John, you know that it doesn't always work in broadcasting with a partner. Um, you know, chemistry is something you can work on, but as a general rule, it's organic. A lot of times in broadcasting, people will go out away from the ballpark to try to uh, get closer. That's what a lot of networks will do, especially with like college football or pro football teams. It seems like with you and Buck, though, it worked pretty quick. At least there's an on-air chemistry. I've seen both of you guys quoted. You really like each other a lot. I don't know if you knew each other prior to getting partnered, but why why has this worked? Why, why does it work at least on-air with you and Joe? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I knew a little bit about Joe beforehand. I've obviously knew his dad. <clears throat> and uh, my thing is I, I have been – kind of tutored by some of the best i mean i have worked with i don't know 13 14 different play-by-play guys in my course of my broadcasting career and i've learned um that you know when you're when you're in that space you are part of a team and you need to make each other as good as you can be by offering you know paying attention um Joe and I, uh, from the very beginning, it was easy. He's one of the, I mean, look, he's one of the greatest ever, uh, and he's done it for a long time, and he can hand the ball off with the best of them. He's not up there um, trying to um, do the broadcast by himself. I mean, those are things when you learn the, 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 when they're coming out of their conversation. The worst thing you can do and the thing that you never want to do as a broadcaster is step on each other. So learning the mannerisms, learning um, and watching and, and, and engaging. See, I would want a broadcast to look like we're sitting down with two stools and we are basically, we're basically doing a game on radio. We're on TV three minutes of the, of the game and we're trying to bring into live TV a conversational um, continuity. And uh, I've, I've been blessed. I really have. I've, I've had some great teachers, some great um, advocates for what I do and, um, you know, all the way back from TBS to Ernie Johnson Jr. and Brian Anderson, Skip and Chip Carey and, and Joe Simpson, they kind of, they set, they set me in motion. They told me the best advice I ever got was from my first producer, Glenn Diamond. And he said, tell me what I don't know. Don't tell me what I know. And as a play-by-play guy, the job of them is to get out of you what you know. And if you can recite whatever somebody can look on a computer, then that's not what I want. 
Anyone can do that at home. Give me the things behind the scenes. Give me some of the stories or give me some of the moments. And so what I look for in my partners at the, in the booth is when the game is good, it's, like I said, it, it's easy, right? But when it's not and there's breaks, then you're having more conversations. You're engaging the personalities of the people in the booth. So that's kind of uh, – I don't mind being a straight person. I don't mind being the old dumb and dumber guy that I am when I like that movie. Um, that's my favorite movie. So if that just tells you what you need to know about my personality. All right, John, as we, um, as we finish up, I want to uh, just hit on two more quick things. One is um, how do you judge on-air success? How do you self-evaluate yourself, and through what means do you do that? Oh, that's a great question because I, I, I'm gonna, I'm probably gonna expose myself here, and I don't know if this is like what I should be doing or shouldn't be doing. I've never watched one broadcast that I've done. Oh, that's that's rare. I just, I, I, well, first of all, I got a busy schedule. Second of all, I'm, I'm going on the uh, bosses to be uh, my critique, uh, my producers and the bosses of, you know, MOB Network and Fox, and obviously. Uh, I feel like it's a good broadcast when I've been prepared uh, and I've been succinct and um, don't talk to – I think – look, I'm not an expert, so just my opinion. I, I think when people get in trouble, they feel like they have to talk. And when they feel like they have to talk, that's when nerves – and that's when you're going to probably say things that just don't come out right. And the baseball game can have spaces of time where no one talks. It's not about filling the air. And I think that's probably the biggest thing that I've learned is the, is the actual pauses and times, when to say something, when not to say something, and not feel like, oh, shoot, there's been 15, 20 seconds, and no one, i, I got to say something. That's, to me, um, some of my best games are when I didn't look at my notes once. And I'm telling you, five hours of work feels like you got to look at your notes and you want to use some of that. So um, I don't have this down pat at all. I wish I did. I wish I had my technology down pat. I wish I could do this in two hours and enjoy the day a little more. It's a lot of work. When I pitched, I had to work and only learn eight guys for the most part. That's it. I only had to know eight guys. And uh, I, I worked very hard on those eight guys to get them out as many times as I could. When I broadcast, I have to know 50. I have to know every single person, and that can get very complicated when you're not part of their, you know, like I said, tour tomorrow, I'm going to see them for the first time. I see them from afar. I've watched them, you know, enough on TV. I've been here at the network talking about them. But the hardest part for, for my role from a broadcast standpoint is – I don't obsess or worry about mistakes. Um, I look at ways to get better. Uh, I look at ways to accumulate information and process it better. But I don't get caught up. I'm not a guy who cares. Um, I shouldn't say that. I'll say it a different way. I, I don't mind criticism and critiques. I just don't get carried away with what people think that aren't applied to my job. You know, I care about what my bosses think and certainly – um, I don't get carried away with a lot of other stuff. Here's the last one, John. And I, again, I appreciate your time today. And I think you'd be, you're just an interesting guy to ask this, even though this question normally would get asked of journalists or more specifically, the people who make the hires at uh, sports broadcasting outlets. Where Where do you stand, or what at least is your thought, on players who, when they were active, or coaches when they were active, who were not cooperative with the media 
getting jobs in the media after their career. It's always interesting to me, having talked to a lot of um, a lot of sports TV execs on this. It's sort of twofold. There's probably a group that doesn't like to bring those people in out of you know whatever sort of uh, you know however you want to sort of think as to why they're not doing that. And then there are others who are like, my job is to get the best possible person on the air. So even if this person was a jerk as a player or coach, or even if this person, you know, uh, was suspended for baseball for for PEDs, et cetera, that's, that's not of my concern. My concern is to get the best possible communicator on the air. So I think there's a couple of ways to think about this. You obviously had a good relationship with the press. This is not specific to you as an individual. Right. But I'm just wondering where you stand on this in terms of, you know, should that be a litmus test? Should 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 the players who ultimately get jobs in broadcasting after they play, should they be people who at least respected the press or were cooperative with the press, or 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 should that not factor in? I'd be curious your thoughts. Well, I, I think it's an interesting and, and pretty good question that may not have, you know, for me, it might have different answers than it would for, for other people. Um, I think there's, um, you know, the way, if you follow the way the world works, it's changing uh Socially, it's changing um, from a network standpoint. And some people are intrigued with uh, content and, like, what, you know, moving the needle. Uh, that seems to be more important for some people than the actual knowledge or the well being of how good they are. And I think that, that's a determination that I can't answer from a, from a hiring standpoint, from a, um, you know, from an upper management. What I can tell you is that I think there is and value in having relationships and value in knowing the other side. Not every experience is going to be a great one. I certainly had my my challenges within the media. I was always available. I felt like at times my time got taken advantage of. And my value from that experience is I know now how to differentiate between a player and now I'm part of that, right? I'm part of the media. And knowing um, – uh, that everyone had a job to do and not everyone when you're a player respected the job or the role um, the way others did and sometimes that comes out and I think when it translates moving forward I don't think that 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 prerequisite comes into play a lot of times uh, I, I would like to think it should but Sometimes the, the coverage you get um, and the notoriety you have trumps it. Now, you still have to be able to deliver and overcome um, those, uh, <laughs> those, those issues. So um, that, that's a complex question that I know for me, I know in the beginning I would have been considered, look, I'm being honest, I would have been considered a very boring guy um, because I don't really have any social networking. I really don't do much outside of my hobbies and, and enjoy what I do, but I'm actually a, a very passionate guy. It's just, you get a chance to see it now in, in the lens of the TV. Whereas before you wouldn't know, um, what I was doing and I liked it that way. So I think there's two, two kind of trains colliding. You got the, um, everything's got to get out there. Everyone's got to know about what you do. And then you got the guy, or the other person that just does their job and does it pretty well and doesn't really care if everybody knows what's going on. I don't know if that makes sense, uh, if I've answered your question or not. It does. Yeah, no, I appreciate the perspective. Uh, and it's you know it's not one you're going to get all the time. Uh, John Smoltz is an analyst for the MLB Network and has been so since 2010. 
He's also, I should say, studio analyst. He's also a booth analyst for Fox Sports, and his role there includes the World Series, where he and Joe Buck have really, um, have really become, in a very short amount of time, an excellent uh, broadcasting team and an excellent listen. Uh, John, I, I admire how you um, have uh, forged your post-playing career in broadcasting, and I wish you continued success. Thank you very much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, back... Uh, Back in the studio, really not back in the studio, actually back at my house at the moment. Uh, but my thanks to John Orand and John Smoltz for coming on the Sports Media Podcast today. Previous guests include Rebecca Lowe, the great NBC Sports Premier League host, Brett McMurphy, Frank Isola. And you can check out all the Sports Media Podcast guests. I think we're almost up to episode 20 of the Post SI Podcast. Uh, so check Sports Media with Richard Deitch on Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Stitcher. And uh, please uh, subscribe. Leave us a review if you like it. That's how the podcast continues. My thanks to uh, my producer, Lou Pellegrino. Thanks to Cadence 13. And we will see you again soon on the Sports Media Podcast.